Hello, everybody. This is Dan Trotter, Pretty Good Bible Studies. I'm now taking up Mark chapter 11, in the middle section of Mark chapter 11. We're going to talk about Jesus and his disciples going into Jerusalem on Monday, cursing the fig tree on the way in. And when they get into Jerusalem, they're going to clean out the temple in the what many people think is the second time he's done that, the second cleansing of the temple. And then Tuesday, that was Monday, and Tuesday they're going to see the results of the cursing of the fig tree. So that's our context. And again, we're talking about Passion Week. He's already come in on the triumphal entry on Palm Sunday, the day before we take it up here on Monday in Mark 11, verses 12. Verse 12, when Mark says, and on the morrow, that means after Palm Sunday, the next day after Palm Sunday, which is Monday. This is according to Robertson's chronology, by the way. Chronology can be very difficult. I'm, I'm relying on Robertson. So, starting with Mark chapter 11, verse 12, reading through verse 14. The next day, that's Monday, when they came out from Bethany, remember that Jesus and his disciples were staying in Bethany, probably at the house of Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. They came out from Bethany. He was hungry. Jesus was hungry. After seeing in the distance a fig tree with leaves, he went to find out if there was anything on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, because it was not the season for figs. He said to it, May no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard it. Now, the first time I read this story, years ago when I was young, I thought, well, this is a strange story. Why, what's he got against a fig tree? What's he cursing a fig tree just because it didn't have any figs on it? Wasn't even the season for figs. And so he curses a fig tree? Hasn't he got something better to do with his time than curse a fig tree? Well, let's discuss this. First of all, fig trees. In Jerusalem, fig trees usually get leaves around March or April, according to my NIV study Bible, in the springtime, which is right around the time of the Passover, which is the time it is right now, as Jesus walks back to Jerusalem. The leaves completely come out in June, and then at which time figs are produced. Now, Gil, John Gill has it backwards from that. He says the figs are produced, and then the leaves come, and I don't believe that. I don't know where he got his idea from. I think the NIV study about Bible is right. I'm not a botanist, but I assume the leaves come out first, and then the figs. So, when one looks at a fig tree, if you see the fig tree full of leaves, you're going to think there's fruit there because it's time for fruit. Because once the leaves are grown, the fruits will, will grow right behind it. But this tree was different. It had all of its leaves out, but no fruit, no figs. So this fig tree had a lot of show, but no substance. Just like Israel, which was all show, all externalities, all show and no substance. And so it was a perfect object lesson to teach the disciples with. And that's why he cursed the fig tree. Now we have two parallel passages of this incident on Monday of Passion Week. We have Matthew chapter 21, four verses there, and then we have Luke 19. We got four verses there too. So let's turn to Matthew 21 right now and read the parallel passage. Early in the morning as he was returning to the city, he was hungry. Now this is Monday morning, returning to Jerusalem from Bethany. Seeing a lone fig tree by the road, he went up to it and found nothing on it except leaves. And he said to it, may no fruit ever come from you again. So that's just like it was in Mark. But then Matthew says this, at once the fig tree withered. Well, the fig tree didn't wither until the next day. The disciples didn't find it till the next day. So the question occurs is why did Matthew say at once? Well, he's collapsing the material according to my NIV study Bible. He's compressing the narrative, which he often did. 
and he emphasizes the immediacy of the judgment. So when he says it once, he means within a day, which is pretty fast for a fig tree to wither. If you think about it, that doesn't happen naturally. So when the disciples saw it in verse 20, Matthew 21, that was the next day on Tuesday as they were going back into to Jerusalem. And they were amazed and said, how did the fig tree wither so quickly? It wasn't like ma- waving a magic wand and watching the fig tree wither in front of them. It was they came back a day later and saw the fig tree wither, and that was pretty fast. And so they say, how did this happen so quickly? Now, the fact that Jesus was hungry and wanted to eat some figs, that is one of the many instances in the Bible which proved Jesus' humanity. The early church, of course, had a problem with Jesus' humanity. They tended to think that he was more God than man, and, and then the early church fathers started reading the, reading the Bible, and they see all these places where Jesus did things like he wept, he got hungry. That's human. So he was fully human as well as fully divine. He might have left Bethany without eating any breakfast, having stayed up all night in prayer to God. Jameson, Fawcett, and Brown speculate. I don't know about that. Now, here's an interesting question. Since it is spring and not the time for figs, and you would not expect a fig tree in spring to have figs, why did Jesus go look for figs on it? Well, because he saw all the leaves. And if you see leaves, you think of figs. So he thought, well, maybe this tree produced early. There's the leaves, so there ought to be fruit there. So it was reasonable for him to go look for the, for the figs because he saw the leaves. Now, why did the fig tree not have any fruit? Well, it could be because it was the wrong season and the leaves just came out prematurely, or it could be because the particular fig tree was bad and was never going to bear any fruit. It doesn't really matter. Now, we haven't discussed this why Jesus did this. Well, because the fig tree was emblematic of the Jews, a perfect symbol. They weren't producing fruit for the people. And they were just about to be cursed. And so Jesus curses the fig tree and says, you're not going to produce fruit anymore and you're going to be cursed, which of course happened in Jerusalem in AD 70 when the whole country was wiped out by the Romans. They were totally destroyed. The cleansing of the temple is sandwiched between the two accounts about the fig tree. Monday morning they come in, he curses the fig tree, he goes into the city and cleanses the temple from all the money changes, which we'll talk about in a minute. He goes back to Bethany Monday night, Tuesday morning he comes out and he and he, and they see the, the cursed withered fig tree. So the NIV Study Bible says because of this, the two accounts of the fig tree on Monday and Tuesday, and we got a cleansing of the temple, this is all designed to teach the apostles, Jerusalem is about to be cursed. And I know that that's your mother city and all this authority that's there and all this religious authority that you've been trained to bow down to all your life. It's going to be gone. It's going to be destroyed. Now, the NIV Study Bible makes the point that Jesus does not explicitly make this application that Jerusalem is going to be destroyed, but it's a reasonable inference, actually. He just talked about faith. And oftentimes people, as we'll see in a minute, when they talk about you can move a mountain if you just believe, people take that verse and just use it about and apply it to faith in general. No, but Jesus is talking about faith that Jerusalem was going to be cursed and these disciples were not going to be persecuted to death and destroyed, but the church would survive and flourish. That was his option. That was his object here. Now, in verse 20 in Matthew, I'll mention this here, I think. In verse 20, it says the disciples were amazed. What were they amazed at? Were they amazed at the fact that Jesus cursed a fig tree? That's what I was amazed at when I first read it. Why would Jesus, the Son of God, be spending his time cursing a lowly fig tree? Were they amazed at the, that he had power to be able to curse a fig tree? Well, I don't know. Would they still be surprised at that after all the miracles that they had seen? Although you can make the point that miracles never get old. I mean, that's why they're miracles. They don't happen very often. Even though when Jesus was doing a lot of miracles, I'm sure that it didn't get blasé with them. Maybe it did. Or were they amazed because of the tree withered so quickly? 
in a day. That's probably what they were amazed at, in my humble opinion. Now, in verse 20 of Mark 11, excuse me, let's, let's go back now, having finished that, let's go back to Mark chapter 11, verse 15. We'll start there. And read to verse 19. They came to Jerusalem, and he went into the temple complex. This is again on Monday morning after he cursed the fig tree. He went into the temple complex. This is the court of the Gentiles is where he is, the outward court. And began to throw out those buying and selling in the temple. He overturned the money changers' tables and the chairs of those selling doves and would not permit anyone to carry goods to the temple complex. We know from John, by the way, it was more than just doves. It was also oxen and sheep. That was a different cleansing at the beginning of the ministry, about three years before this, most probably. But in that passage in John 2, we see that it was oxen, sheep, and doves. He turned them. He turned over their their chairs, and, and you imagine the animals went running too. Who knows what happened to the animals, and also the money tables were turned over. Then he began to teach, and also it says here in Mark 11, verse 16, he would not permit anyone to carry goods through the temple complex. He did more than just turn tables over. He prohibited traffic through the court of the Gentiles there. Then he began to teach them, is it not written, my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you have made it a den of thieves. Then the chief priest and the scribes heard it and started looking for a way to destroy him, for they were afraid of him because the whole crowd was astonished by his teaching, and whenever evening came, they would go out of the city. All right, this throwing out cleansing of the temple is the second one, according to most people, according to many people, not necessarily some people say that when John describes his cleansing of the temple in John, I think it's John chapter 2, that he is basically taking this incident and putting it in the front of all the other ministry of Jesus, throwing it out of chronological order in order to make a point. The point being that Jesus had come to judge the temple at the very beginning. I don't think so. I think there was two of them because it doesn't surprise me that within three years after he cleansed it once, that three years later, they just came right back and continued on with their nonsense. Now, notice that Mark says that Jesus did not permit anyone to carry goods through the temple complex. That's even stricter than just running out merchandisers of animals and money changers. He wouldn't even let anybody carry their sheep and their oxen and their dove through the temple complex, through the court of the Gentiles. Now, ironically, that agrees with exactly what one of the the rabbinic, not, the, not Moses now, but the rabbis canons, the rabbis had a rule that says this, quote, a man may not go into the mountain of the house, that's the temple mount, the mountain where the temple is, a man may not go in there with his staff in his hands, nor with shoes on his feet, nor with his girdle and his money in it, nor with a bag thrown over his shoulders, nor with dust on, upon his feet, nor might he make it a thoroughfare, and much less spit in it. In other words, common activities were not to be done in the temple, and this was a common activity. Now, we're going to talk about what were the money changers doing that was so wrong that got Jesus angry. Talk about that in a little bit. Let's note here that it says after he threw out the animals and the owners of the animals and the money changers, he began to teach them. Is it not written, my house will be called a house of prayer? Teaching sounds to me more like it's rebuke and chastise them. Strange sort of teaching after that. That took a lot of hootspah for Jesus to be able to do that because he is Bitten in the eyes of the temple authorities when he's and he's aiming at their money source of income. And of course the Sadducees were in charge of the temple, and the chief priests were in charge of the temple, and here Jesus is kicking sand in their eyes. Why were there money changes there? Because the temple tax, which was required by the law of Moses, it had to be paid in the local currency, it had to be shekels. 
And the Mishnah actually required Tyrian currency for some offerings, according to my NIV study Bible, Tyrian currency from Tyre, that big trading metropolis. And so they had to have the right, whether it was a shekel or whether it was Tyrian currency, they had to have the right coins. And these people coming from all over the place with their own local coinage, they had to buy, they had to get some foreign exchange. They were pilgrims, remember, coming to Passover, which was required. One of the three feasts every year, a good Jew had to go to Jerusalem. And so there were a lot of pilgrims going to Passover, and they needed animals to sacrifice. So the vendors would set up animal pens in the court of the Gentiles, according to the NIV Study Bible. Now, our parallel passages in Matthew 21 and in Luke 19 don't really add anything to what Mark said. So I'll just continue commenting on what I just read from Mark. Why were there money changers there? Why were they changing money in the temple? Well, as I said, they had to make change for people to pay the one-half shekel temple tax. They needed the right currency. Now, this temple tax is from Exodus 30:13. Everyone who is registered must pay half a shekel according to the sanctuary shekel, 20 jeras to the shekel. This half shekel is a contribution to the Lord. Now, apparently that was to help build the temple. It was supposed to be temporary. But the Jews, like most governments, you know, they put a tax on, oh, this is just a temporary tax, and 50 years later it's still there. And so the Jews had done the same thing. So they had to pay temple taxes. They also had to, the people had to buy animals to make sacrifices too, in addition to that temple tax. So they needed those money changers. Now, this raises the question, well, if the money changers are doing something perfectly legitimate, and they were, I mean, what's wrong with changing money? you got to have the right coinage to pay. And they would make a profit on, like, all money changes today in the airport, and you buy a foreign exchange, they're going to take a piece of it for their commission, and nobody complains about that because that's legitimate. So why did Jesus drive them out? What were they doing that was so bad? Well, here's some options. Well, first of all, they were doing legitimate business, but it was common business done in proximity to the temple. In other words, what they were doing was legitimate, but it was done in the wrong place. That's a good possibility, I think. Perhaps they were charging too high fees for their services. They were gouging people. They did have a monopoly because there were no temple money changers outside the temple where people could go so they could get a cheaper rate. Just like in an airport today, you want to change your money there? Well, by golly, you don't have a choice. You're trapped in that airport. Now, if you go out, I was in China for a long time, constantly had to get foreign exchange. You go out and you can go to a bank or you can go to a money changer. You can go to black market people on the You can go to a fellow professor and say, you got some dollars I'll buy from R&B I need to buy some dollars. You got something to sell me, and they give you a market rate. But you can't do that when you're trapped inside the temple. So maybe they were charging a monopoly fee for their money changing services. But at any rate, I think the real reason is because what they were doing was not so not wrong per se, but it was done in the wrong place, too close to the temple. And selling those sacrificial animals that was perfectly legitimate too, but it was done in too close to the temple, and it made it look like a merchandise mart. And that's why Jesus, well, that's what he said. He said you have made it a a den of robbers. Now. Mark mentions that doves were being sold. Matthew does too. Why? Why doves? Well, doves were used a lot in the temple ritual. It was used for the purification of women after they'd had a child. You had to offer a pigeon or a turtle dove for a sin offering. Uh, if you had leprosy and had it cleansed, which didn't happen too often, but if you did, you had to have two turtle doves, two young pigeons. You had to have them. If a man had a seminal discharge or bloody discharge, he had to have two turtle doves to get, go through the cleansing ritual in, in, the, in the law. That's in Leviticus 15. The cleansing of leprosy, the skin disease, is Leviticus 14. 
Leviticus 12 is where women had to be purified with the sacrifice of a turtle dove. How about the cleansing of a woman, woman with a discharge, a bloody discharge, a vaginal discharge, a hemorrhage of some sort, uh, a period or something like that? Two turtle doves, Leviticus 15. What happens if you didn't have enough money to offer an ox or a sheep to the Lord? Well, then you could, if you were poor, you could substitute a turtle dove. So each turtle doves were very in, much in demand. Now, Jesus said that the money changers had turned God's house of prayer into a den of thieves, a robber's den. He's quoting two scriptures here. In Isaiah 56, 7, Isaiah says this, I will bring them to my holy mountain and let them rejoice in my house of prayer. That's believers in God. Their burnt offerings and sacrifices will be acceptable on my altar, for my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations. And of course, I think that's typological for the church, which is a house of prayer for all nations, for all the Gentiles. So God's temple, and that was still the temple of God at the time. That was the the type. The antitype, of course, was coming, the church, but that hadn't gotten here yet. That was a type, and it was a house of, supposed to be a house of prayer. Instead, it was a den of robbers. The Jews had turned the court of Gentiles into a noisy, smelly marketplace. Now, the den of thieves quotation comes from Jeremiah 7.11. Jeremiah says this, Has this house, which is called by my name, in other words, God's house, the temple in Jerusalem, has it become a den of robbers in your view? Yes, I too have seen it. This is the Lord's declaration. Jesus said, yeah, this, uh, God said yes. Through Jeremiah, he said, yes, the temple is a den of robbers. And you could imagine that probably rankled the chief priest and the Sadducees who were in charge of the temple finances and in charge of the temple service. They didn't like this man coming in, here, in there and putting his finger on their source of income. This verse has great application, this den of thieves quotation. Has great op application for those getting rich off the gospel today. Are you listening, Kenneth Copeland? Are you listening, Benny Hinn? Are you listening, Steve Furtick? Are you listening, Criflo Dollar? All these people out there building mansions, getting rich off the gospel. The money changers were taking advantage of people who didn't know any better. They, they really, they had no other choice. They had to go there. Just like these prosperity people are taking advantage of people. Although the prosperity, the people who are being taken care of by the prosperity people who are being robbed. By the prosperity preachers, they should know better, but they're like sheep without a shepherd. They don't have anybody telling them, and they're buying into all this crapola. So every time I see one of these faith guys on TV, just I just think, den of robbers, den of robbers, den of robbers. Now, Mark, at the end of the section I just read, said that the chief priest and the scribes heard it and started looking for a way to destroy him. They heard that Jesus had called, had said that they had made the temple of God into a den of thieves, they didn't like it. And they started looking for a way to destroy him. For they were afraid of him because the whole crowd was astonished by his teaching. In other words, this man's got the power to start a revolution and completely wipe us out. So they're desperate now. They've got to figure out how can they kill him without getting the crowd to turn on him. That's their big problem now. They were afraid of him. They wanted to destroy him, but Jesus wasn't afraid of them. They were afraid of Jesus. Which is pretty cool because Jesus, he had no bodyguard. He had no police force. He had no army. He just had the power of the words of God. And he scared the fool out of religious hypocrites and extortioners that he was fighting. Now, if we go over to Luke and pick up just a few details. Luke doesn't have too much. Luke 19, verses 45 through 48. We see it says he was teaching daily in the temple. So that means Monday, Tuesday, Thursday, he was teaching. I think Wednesday, he took a day off. He was in on the Mount of Olives, but he taught every time he was in there. He wasn't in, in there just to cause a scene. He was in there trying to teach the people. 
And Luke also adds the idea that the leaders, the scribes and the principal men of the people, the leaders, probably the people in the Sanhedrin, doesn't say, but that's probably who they were. They could not find what they might do for all the people hung upon him listening, as the King James says. They couldn't figure out what to do with Jesus. So they were in a quandary. Luke sort of adds that. Mark says the, the leaders, the chief priests, feared Jesus. Luke says they not only feared him, they couldn't figure out what they're going to do. They're confused. Now, Jesus did some more teaching, which is recording in the book of John, recorded in the book of John. We're not going to go through that. We'll take it up when we get to John. So now we're going to go to Tuesday morning on the way from Bethany to Jerusalem. We'll pick it up in Mark 11, verses 19. I've already read some of verse 19 to you. I'll read it again. And whenever evening came, they would go out of the city. So in other words, Monday came, Monday night came. He's cleansed the temple. He goes back to Bethany, starting in verse 20 and going through 24 in Mark 11. Early in the morning, that's Monday morning, as they were passing by, they saw the fig tree withered from the roots up. Excuse me, this is Tuesday morning. Early in the morning, Tuesday morning, as they were passing by, they saw the fig tree withered from the roots up. That's the fig tree that Jesus had cursed Monday morning going into the city. Then Peter remembered, remembered yesterday that Jesus had cursed the tree. Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed yesterday is withered. Jesus, Jesus replied to them, have faith in God. I assure you, if anyone says to this mountain, be lifted up and thrown into the sea and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will happen, it will be done for him. Therefore, I tell you, all the things you pray and ask for, believe that you have received them and you will have them. All right, what mountain was Jesus talking about that could be picked up in, from its roots? Probably the Mount of Olives. That was the, the mountain that was near them. Some people say, and I think I got this from David Chilton. I, I didn't write it down, so I can't remember. But he says that the mountain is symbolic of the rabbinic order. And he goes back and quotes a bunch of rabbis. I don't know rabbinic literature enough to know whether this is true or not. But according to him... The mountain stands for the rabbinic order, and therefore it's going to take a lot of faith to think that those powerful people could be overthrown by a bunch of ignorant fishermen. And so you're going to have to have faith that that mountain, the rabbinic order, was going to be removed, which it was in AD 70. Well, that's perfectly reasonable, I think. Which sea could, was Jesus talking about being thrown into? Could the Sea of Galilee up north, the Dead Sea in the south close by, the Mediterranean Sea to the west? or just the sea in general, it doesn't really matter. The point is, is that a mountain being thrown into the sea is a big event. Now, was Jesus speaking literally here? Of course not. He didn't mean disciples could go around and like magic praying that mountains be thrown into the sea. He's talking about you guys are going to be protected from those people that are angry at me and trying to destroy me because I just overturned their money tables and ran out their sacrificial animals. They're mad at me, and they're going to be coming after you. But hey, have faith in God. Believe in me. That's why he brought this up at this particular time. And so many people teach this passages about faith, and they just take it out of its context and talk generically. But Jesus was talking about a particular way to have faith in God for a particular purpose, which is to protect themselves from Jerusalem, the chief priest, the scribes, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, and all the leaders of the people that were going to try to kill the disciples just like they ended up killing the master. So when Jesus says, all the things you pray and ask for, he's talking about praying for deliverance from persecution. Believe that you have received them and you will have them. You will be delivered from the, these persecutors. Now verse 20 in Mark says, Peter says, the fig tree that you cursed is withered from the roots up. 
They saw the fig tree withered from the roots up. That's a little detail that Mark adds. It was totally cursed, top to bottom, bottom to top, just like Israel was going to be totally destroyed. Mark adds the detail, by the way, it was Peter that pointed out the fig tree to them. The other two Gospels don't mention that. Let's go on to, uh, no, excuse me, let's look at what I just read here and repeat it again. Jesus says, I assure you, if anyone says to this mountain, be lifted up and thrown to the sea, and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says. So it's not, magic would be you just say what you want and it happens. No, you've got to believe in your heart first. And of course, you've got to believe what's in God's will. You don't believe just whatever you want to believe. You have to believe what God's revealed to you. That is so important when we talk about prayer and believing God. He's got to reveal it to you first. But having said that, this is a very positive statement. If you believe it's in God's will and you believe it, even though you can't see it, it's going to be done. It will be done for you. That's in the future. You might have to wait for it, but it will be done. All things you pray and ask for, that assumes all things that are in the will of God. Believe that you have received them, and you will have them. Notice that you have received is in the past, will have is in the future. Believe that you have received them. That means it's done in heaven in the past. But as, it, as you wait to see it actually come to pass in your life in the present on earth, you've got to wait for it because that's in the future. You will have them. That's in the future. And that's a pattern of prayer. That's why Jesus gave us the parables of importunate, persistent prayer. Knock, 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 and you receive the unjust judge. Judge, 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 give me your judgment. Praying to God, if you believe in God's a good father, you being evil will give good to your sons. How much more shall your heavenly father who is good give you good gifts when you ask for them? It will give the Holy Spirit when you ask. The idea is ask, 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 and just because you don't see the answer immediately, don't quit asking. Just keep asking because there is going to be a time gap between the time that God's decided to give it to you in heaven and the time when you receive it on earth. It's called endurance, folks. It's one of the fruits of the Spirit. You have to endure when things don't look good. As 99% of the time, they don't look good. Things always look bad. But God is never worried about how bad things look. He's sitting up there perfectly content in heaven, laughing at the fools who are making fun of him laughing at the fool who says in his heart there is no God, and he's working out his plans. It's just us, just to endure till we see his plans worked out, knowing that all things work together for good for us that love him. All right, one little minor detail, and we'll finish up Matthew and go back to Mark for our last point. It says that this fig tree that Jesus cursed was by the road in Matthew 21, verse 19. This was a public place, so the fig tree didn't belong to anyone in case someone would reject. How can Jesus go over there and curse somebody's private property? This is not a situation like with a Gadarene demoniac where the question raise, is, arises, how can Jesus destroy somebody's private flock of pigs? 2,000 of them, a lot of value there, but this was a public fig tree. No question here, he had the right, he didn't destroy anybody's property when he cursed it. So let's now go back to Mark chapter 11, verse 25, and we'll go through verse 25. We'll stop right there. Well, verse 26 is questionable whether it's in the, in the original autographs because it's because of manuscript problems. So we'll look at verse 25 and 26 and finish this section of Mark up. Mark 11, verse 25 reads this, And whenever you stand praying, if you have anything against anyone, forgive him, so that your Father in heaven will also forgive you your wrongdoing. Now, I must say, the first thing that strikes you here is, wow, what has that got to do with what he was teaching about the fig tree on the way to Jerusalem on Tuesday of Passion Week? I'm not sure why he brought it up there. This is a, re a repetition of the teaching he gave in the Sermon on the Mount. 
long, long time ago, three years before or so. Verse 26, but if you don't forgive, neither will your Father in heaven forgive your wrongdoing. Uh, maybe he was worried about the disciples forgiving all these people that were persecuting him in Jerusalem. Maybe that's why he brought it up again. I don't know. But there's a further, a more deeper problem that I've always had with this verse and the one in the Sermon on the Mount is it sounds like works for righteousness. If I don't forgive somebody, Jesus is going to send me to hell because he's not going to forgive me. And of course, forgiving people is not the easiest thing in the world to do when somebody screws you and you haven't gotten worked yourself up, got your heart settled enough to where you've forgiven them, and then you die in that, and, and during that time as you're trying to, <laughs> trying to forgive them, and then all of a sudden you're going to go to hell because God's not going to forgive you? It can't mean that. That would be works righteousness. Well, here's what John Gill says about that. The Father's forgiveness is not referring to eternal remission of sins. Rather, it refers to God being pleased with the believer. In other words... If you have anything against anyone, forgive him, so that your Father in heaven will be pleased with you for forgiving him. He will forgive you. He will restore his relationship with you, not that he's going to make you eternally saved. I don't know how else you can reconcile it. I think that's exactly what Jesus meant. But it is confusing because Jesus doesn't condition his gift of salvation to us. He doesn't condition that on what we do for him or what we do. He just doesn't. That's, if there's anything that's taught in the gospel, you don't have to be Martin Luther or John Calvin to see that one. I mean, it's clear as a bell that our forgiveness is not based on our works. Now, there's a manuscript problem in verse 26 says, but if you don't forgive, neither will your Father in heaven forgive your wrongdoing. Many ancient manuscripts don't have any good manuscripts don't have it. So I'm going to assume it's not there. The Holman Christian Study Bible puts it in brackets. My Robertson KGV here leaves it completely out. And puts it in a note. Or maybe that's Robertson that puts it in the note, verse 26. But it doesn't matter. The idea is in verse 25. You better, you got a need to forgive, so Jesus, God will forgive you. All right, so having said that, what is it that we need to remember? Is that you want to maintain your relationship with God. You better forgive people. And, and believe me, offenses will come, as Jesus said. <laughs> people are going to screw you. They're going to mistreat you. They're going to misunderstand you. They're going to say bad things about you. It will happen. When it does happen, you better forgive them if you want to maintain your relationship with Jesus. Because after all, he forgave you a lot more than what that person did to you. This is basic teaching. Easy to teach, hard to do. But I'll just give you some encouragement. Do it. You'll be real happy and your heavenly Father will be very pleased with you. All right, we finish with Matthew 11, verses 12 through 26. We will continue the next in the next audio with Mark chapter 11, starting with verse 27. I hope you enjoyed this audio.